tink, tink, tink. The sound of a hammer clanging against hot metal rings loudly through the cavernous workshop. The brightness of the shop belies the hour. It is very early, long before the sun. The sun never really shines in ruined Cathare anyway, now does it? Tink, tink, tink. The hammer continues to beat and clang, reverberating around the stone walls. A small figure, clad in heavy, dark overalls, brings the hammer down again and again onto a long, slender piece of steel. In his left hand, he holds a red stone about the size of a kiwi. It glows bright red, and with the glow, the steel heats until it becomes radiant and malleable. Tink, tink, tink. Across the room, a door opens as another short figure enters. He slowly makes his way across the room to you, each step clink clanging with the sound of a cane hitting the floor, followed in step by a metal peg leg. He approaches the young man, clanging away at the metal with his hammer. Hearing someone approach, he turns, pulling up his thick goggles. Zach, why don't you describe your character for us? I'm three foot one. I'm a gnome. My skin is gray. It almost looks like a vampire, like what you would imagine vampire color skin to look like. Okay. My eyes are blue. But I guess from the lack of light, they're almost like shadowy, like they look dead. (laughs) Oh, that's good. (laughs) And then I kind of just have like long, messy hair pulled up into a bun. It's black. Black hair. And what are you wearing? I have a pair of Tinker goggles over my face right now. I'm wearing a dark gray shirt with heavy black overalls and then a pouch across my waistline to keep my tools. You turn and you see an old man, or I should say an old gnome, coming towards you. He's got crazy, wiry hair, all white. He looks like he just rolled out of bed. He also has a pair of goggles on, but they are thick and they make his eyes look huge. You know these as his prescription goggles. You know, he made them himself. He is wearing what looks like an apron uh, over a nice button-down white shirt with big black stains all over it, (laughs) and then some long, thick, heavy gray pants as well. He's got his cane in his right hand where he is making up for the lack of half of his right leg, which ends uh, around the knee and has a metal peg uh, that he is leaning onto as he walks up close to you from behind. And as you turn to see him lifting your goggles so that you can see him, you know, better, he says, well, good morning, Chris. Hey, Gearby, how are you? I'm good. I can see you're already at it this morning, bright. Well, it's, I would say bright and early. It's bright in here, but uh, it's still night. Have you been here? Have you been here all night? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't leave. <laughs> well, you know today is a pretty important day. You need your rest, Chris. Uh, it's nothing I've, you know haven't taken care of before. Well, maybe that's true, but it's it's a big day, you know. Big day. <sighs> it's the last one, isn't it? Has it really already been ten years? Yep, ten years. Feels like it's gone in the blink of an eye. Well, that's good, I guess. Uh, I try to make this a pretty good place to work. Have you Have you enjoyed working here all these years, Chris? 
Eh, enjoy. No, I'm kidding. It's it's been great. <laughs> he he kind of chuckles with a deep, hearty laugh. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure having you work here and and learn, uh, Prentice. And and I've learned some things from you too, Chris. I have. Uh, even an old gnome like me uh, can still learn some new tricks. Well, I'm glad I could teach you something. Oh, Gearby, I have something for you. I made you something. You made me something. I turn and I start, you know, scrambling through the desk, looking for pieces, throwing on the final parts. And then the last piece I reach for is a, it's almost like the attachment to where I'm going to put this on. Uh, It has stones grafted into it, but I turn around and it's a metal leg for him. Okay. When I put it on his, like I'm attaching it to his leg, as I put it on, Uh, and finally click it into place, it starts to blend to where it looks like it's naturally part of his leg. Well, my goodness. Uh, This is some of your best work, Chris. Yeah, I had a little time to mess with it, and uh, I'm pretty experienced as I kind of look down at my left hand and start to wiggle it around. (laughs) Look at that. It looks just like flesh. I'm assuming that's one of your enchantments. Yeah, it's a couple of them combined. You you are pretty handy with those uh, those stones, aren't you, Chris? <laughs> handy, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it like that, but uh, <laughs> you're right. Uh, it is. Uh, that's, a, that's a good joke for me. It's too early. <laughs> it's too early, Chris. Uh, okay. Well, look, I don't know what to say. Um, here, and he hands you his cane. And he takes a few steps around the shop, uh, kind of feeling it out. And you can tell he looks a little awkward kind of walking with it because he's been so accustomed to walking on a a little metal rod for so long. Oh, this is uh, is some good handiwork here, Chris. Uh, Might take me a little getting used to, but thank you. I, uh, I don't know what to say. What you've done for me the past 10 years has been enough. Thank you, Gearby. Well, it's been uh, it's been my pleasure, Chris. But you know, it, <laughs> I know it sounds like we're saying goodbye and uh, this is the end. But you know, you're welcome to to just keep working. I mean, still a lot of work to be done uh, here. Fizzy Gear Guild is is more popular than it's ever been. We're busy, busy, busy. I mean, I know you've got that adamantine to deliver to Dimmerhold later this evening, and and I know you said you're gonna probably. Stay there for a while, right? Check things out. But whenever you're ready, you, your job, your place here is waiting for you. I mean, I, I'm not going to live forever, Chris. You know, this guild, it needs people like you who, with some, some good old-fashioned elbow grease and ingenuity, can, can take things forward. That's, that's, what, uh, that's what Rune Cathair is all about, isn't it? Taking things forward. I'll be back eventually. I've been stuck in Rune Rock my whole life, Gearby. Uh, I, I want to get out and experience a little bit, but I'll return to the guild. I'll be back. I understand. I understand. I, I, I've been out a bit myself, you know, did a little wandering around, but there's no place quite like Rune Rock. It's a big world out there, but this place is special. So I look forward to when you do return, and uh, hopefully you'll have something cool and new to show me as long as you're not dead you old fart (laughs) (laughs) he gives a big deep chest chuckle and laugh 
You probably ought to be getting on out of here now, Chris. You've got, uh, you've got business to take care of. You're not quite done yet. Yeah, I know. Before we leave, I gotta go say bye to Chris and Chris, though. You know, I, tell them, tell them I said hello. Tell them I said thank you. Are they doing okay with all this? Are they doing all right? I mean, they're a little sad, like all parents would be, but they'll get over it. All right, well, tell them I said hello, and you have a good morning. You too. I grab my staff and swiftly move out the door. Chris uh, makes his way across the workshop, stepping toward the back, um, and there is a large metal door, the same one that Gearby just came through a few moments ago. You step outside, and it is dim outside. It, it seems almost like dawn, you know, where the sun is just starting to sort of glow the sky. Of course, the sky in Runecathair is not the sky. <laughs> it has been crafted to look sky-like. It has a sort of bluish glow, but not the same sky blue. It is a stone ceiling, this cavernous underground city built somewhere far beneath the surface of Manumi. Chris, you step out the large door and it's quiet out, dimly lit as this faux dawn has begun. It's mostly quiet except for this low, consistent hum that seems to permeate the city. In fact, it's always seeming to permeate the city. It is a constant sound of machinery that reverberates through the streets, especially in this part where you are near the Fizzy Gear Guild workshop. You know, it's a very industrial part of the city, and, and right here there's a lot going on. So there's a lot of that machinery sound and that hum. You step out onto the street, and right there in the front where you expect is a small, what looks like metal or stone pod. Uh, it's spherical, almost perfectly round, and small, but just large enough for you. You walk over to the pod. There's an opening in the top with a seat down inside. You hop over, stowing your staff away, and you reach into your satchel, and you pull out this perfectly circular plate. You take the plate, and there is an indention in front of you inside the pod that is the exact same size as this plate. You hold it over it, and you hear a low hum, and then it clicks into place magnetically. Then the pod begins to hum, vibrate, and hover off of the stone street. And it begins to move forward, slowly at first, but gathering speed. It goes forward from the entrance of the workshop to the guild until it reaches the street rails. You turn the circular plate in front of you in its place until it turns orange. The pod passes over these blue rails down inside the street and these green rails until it reaches the orange rails and then it turns and takes off over top of these rails at a faster speed. You don't see many other pods on the rails this early coming or going as Rune Cather is still mostly asleep. But within just a few minutes, as the ceiling sky above you begins to glow a little brighter and a little brighter, you turn the circular plate one more time and the pod slows and then veers off from the orange rails. You got it through some smaller streets, moving slowly, passing numerous houses and structures, until you turn in through a swinging circular gate beside a tall cylindrical structure. Once you pass through the gate, the pod clicks onto a short rail, leading to a designated stopping point. The humming quiets and the vibration stops as the pod lowers back to the ground 
resting. So I remove the plate and put it back in my satchel. I hop out of the hole at the top and start heading towards the back door of the house. You go inside the back door and you're immediately greeted with the smell of hot breakfast being prepared by your mom, Chris. And when I say that, I don't mean Chris's mom. I mean Chris's mom, Chris. Because everybody in this Chris house is Chris for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sorry. Uh, I'm not sorry. uh, You walk forward, you enter the back door, and your mom, Chris, is standing there uh, at the stove cooking what you can smell because it's your favorite breakfast. You request it often. uh, Fresh eggs and mushrooms. Your mom is cooking eggs and mushrooms, and she... Here's you walk in and she turns. Good morning, honey. I've got breakfast cooking. Why don't you describe what your mom looks like? She is slightly taller than me. So like 3'2"? Yeah, 3'2". She's an inch taller. It's a, it's a big difference in the That's, gnome world. That is slight. It's slight. You know, it's a slight. Yeah. But she has the same like colored skin as me. Mm-hmm. So the gray tinted. The yeah. Sure. Uh, her eyes are actually green, but... Uh, same as almost everyone in Rundrock. Uh, they have that gray, cloudy to them from, you know, lack of sunlight. Hmm. <laughs> okay. She has long black hair down to her ankles. And then I assume since she's at the house, she's just in lounging clothes, probably has an apron on from where she's been cooking all morning. You walk up to her, and as is usual, she is humming a little tune, singing to herself while she's cooking. She pauses as you walk by. She turns and gives you a little hug around the neck and a kiss on the cheek. So, you didn't come home last night. Yeah, sorry. I got caught up in the workshop. I was trying to surprise Gearby, you know, for my last day. Oh, did you finish the leg? I finished the leg, and it is amazing. Oh, I bet it was. How did he like it? Did he Did he take it well? Um, I mean, he seemed to enjoy it. It'll take some getting used to. Uh, oh, no doubt. Years on a metal leg doesn't. Just go away overnight. Oh, no, no, no. But he, he, I'm sure he's very thankful. He's a good man. He's, he's done a lot for this family. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, he gave us a source of income, but also taught me some very important life lessons that I'll never forget. Yeah, a lot more than income for you, Chris. I mean, <laughs> he taught you a lot. If it wasn't for Gearby, then you certainly wouldn't be the gnome that you are today. Don't forget that now that you're going off on your adventure or whatever. Gosh, Mom, do you want me to call him Dad or something? Jeez. No. I'm sorry. I'm I'm a little uh, amped. You know, it's uh, it's a it's a big day. Don't get all emotional on me. I don't have time for this. She looks sad. <laughs> <laughs> she looks up and she, she looks down at you. I guess a little bit. I'm sorry. I just can't help it. You know my. My baby boy's going out on his own. It's a big day. Uh, I'm excited for you, Chris. I really am. But I'm also nervous, you know? I mean, I am your mother. Mom, I'll be back. Like you said, Gerby made me, you know, the gnome I am, okay? If I'm even half the wizard that he is, I think I can handle it. Yes, well, breakfast is almost ready. Uh, Why don't you go upstairs and, and, and get your father? Okay, so I walk out of the kitchen into our like little living area. Uh, okay, mom and dad keep the house simple, mm-hmm. very few decorations. You know, just occasionally something to sit in, a couple right. of desks. You know, scattered throughout sure. the house. Mm-hmm. But then there is a large spiral staircase leading to the upper floor. Yeah, 
And your dad's workshop is at like the top of this cylindrical house, right? Yeah. So you make your way up there. You come to the top and the door is open. You step inside and your dad is leaning over a large stone work table uh, working on something. Why don't you describe what he looks like? He's actually quite a bit bigger than me and mom. Um, probably, you know, three, nine. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's he's large. Yeah. He's bald. Okay. Of course, the skin and the eye situation are pretty much the same. Okay. But he has brown eyes, and then he kind of has a hole in his cheek uh, from a fishing <laughs> accident from oh, when he no. was a kid. Uh, the hook kind of went through him, and then, yeah. Wow. He is leaning over this table, like I said, working on something, and he hears you as you walk in. He says, Oh, good morning, son. Good morning, Chris. It's a uh, early day, huh? Uh, early day, late night. I can't tell which one it is. You didn't come home last night, did you, son? Nope. In the workshop working all night again. Did you finish the leg? Yeah, I finished the leg. Smooth as could be. And Gearby, he, uh, he appreciated it. He was good. Good to you. I mean, he didn't throw it on the floor and say he hated it, so... Well, that's a, that's a good sign. <laughs> Uh, we've, I've seen Gearby throw many a tantrum, but, uh, I'm sure he was very appreciative and, uh, you did a really, really kind thing for him. I don't think he'll forget it. Yeah. It's the least I could do to repay him. So, well, I didn't get a whole lot of sleep either. Uh, I was actually working on a little something for you, son. Oh, dad, you shouldn't have. Well, you know, my boy's going out on his own, be his own man, uh, try out the world or whatever, uh, for a little while. So I figured... Uh, your old fisherman dad could probably do a little bit to help out with that. And he turns and he's holding in his hand a staff, a long wooden staff, around the same length as the one that you're carrying now. But it looks pristine. Uh, he has carved it down to a perfect smoothness. And he has put a very nice like graphite, but like a softened graphite, something that you guys kind of deal with down here, handle uh, around the middle where you would hold it. Uh, at the bottom, there is a similar soft graphite foot that is attached. Not like a <laughs> like a foot, but like a little <laughs> stopper, like a dark blackish gray stopper at the bottom of it. And then there is this strange looking gray twine tied around at the top with a hook hanging off of it. This is uh, this will be just right for you. Uh, your satchel, you can here. You got here. Give me your satchel. And he he kind of grabs the uh, the staff out of your hands and he just unhooks the satchel that's just tied around the end of it and he puts it onto this new twine and this hook uh, and then he holds it up. He kind of looks it over, looks at it. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. And he gives it to you. Oh my gosh, Dad, I love it. How long did you spend on this? Uh, you know, uh, it doesn't really matter. I, I spent some time on it. Uh, you like it? I love it. The The graphite, it matches the polka dots on the sock. Yeah, he's, he kind of scratches his bald head. Yeah, that took a little bit of testing, uh, but I finally got it. So I'm glad that you like it, son. Um, hopefully, well, this is a really strong, it, it's, uh, I've enchanted it like I do a lot of my fishing rods. So it won't break. Don't worry. Nothing, <laughs> well, I won't say nothing. But nothing that you should be dealing with uh, will have any risk of breaking this bad boy. Thanks, Chris. And I run in and I hug him. I'm going to miss you and Mom. I'm going to miss you too, son. Uh, your mom, she's really going to... She's holding it together pretty good, but she's going to... She's kind of had a little bit of a hard time with this. 
Yeah, I know. Don't let her cry too much. I'll be back. It won't be that long. As you say that, there is this sound that sort of reverberates through the walls, as it always does here in Ruined Cathair, at 7 a.m. sharp, signaling that it's morning, it's time for the workday to begin for most people. And you know, Chris, that your train is waiting at 8 o'clock, so you uh, kind of need to get out of here in a hurry. Well, Dad, that's my signal to go. Um, I'll be seeing you. Well, listen, son, your mom's been cooking you breakfast all morning. Make sure that you you uh, get some on the way out, okay? And I just kind of, like, take off and run. He he grabs you. I, I take he off He grabs and run. you into a big hug. <laughs> he grabs you. You're not getting away from me, son. No, no, no. Give me a hug, son. I don't know when I'll see you again. Come here. Come here. <sighs> Y'all are so emotional. I just, like, hug him. And then... He gives you a big hug, and he pats you on the back and says, uh, make sure you write when you get the chance. It'll mean a lot to your mom. I will. You head downstairs, and your mom is standing there. She is holding a little plate of eggs and mushrooms, as well as a little uh, box that she's put together, a little basket, sort of. Um, And she's got tears in her eyes. You can tell she's been crying, but she says, Here's your breakfast, honey. Eat it while it's warm. And and I've also taken the liberty of packing you some some lunches in this this little basket. You know... you might get hungry on the, on the trip and just be careful, okay? Um, before I say anything, I just like kind of ignore the food. I just run up and give her a hug. Okay. I'm more of a mama's boy. So like, <laughs> you know, with dad, I was like real, you know, <laughs> trying to act tough. With her, I just like run up and give her a hug. Yeah, she gives you a big hug. You know, holding back the tears. I don't say anything. Yeah. I just kind of sit there for a minute. Don't worry. Don't worry, Chris. It'll be fine. You'll be fine. And we'll be here when you're done. You can come back. Everything will be just fine. Just be careful. I will, Mom. And I take what she's holding in her hand and kind of put the box away. Mm -hmm. And then I'm shoving my face full of food as I'm heading out the door. (laughs) (laughs) You woof these eggs and mushrooms as you head out the front door and out in front of the house waiting for you at 7 o'clock sharp is another one of these pods, but this one is more like a public transportation pod. It's longer. Uh, It could probably seat three, two, four, maybe even five gnomes. And in the front of it uh, is a gnomish girl. She is seated. She's got bright orange hair. And she gives you a little wave and says, Chris? Do I know her? Or is that just like it's a taxi type thing? Yeah, it's just like a taxi type thing. Yeah, that's me. Uh, I'm here to give you a ride to the station. Yeah. Yeah, and I just kind of hop in. <laughs> okay. You awkwardly <laughs> climb into the back. She yeah, turns. Like, why is she still talking? No. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to be friendly. Gosh. Sure. She turns the circular plate in the front of the pod, and it begins to take off again. It circles around, and you all head back toward the rails that are running across the major streets through Ruined Cathair and you click onto the red rails heading west. You come uh, upon some more traffic. There are a few more pods on the move, some individual ones like yours and some more transportational like public stuff like this one, but it's still not too bad. It's still pretty early in the day. And finally, after a somewhat short journey, not too far, probably 15, 20 minutes or so, the pod comes rolling up to the entrance of the station. 
The station is carved into the side of this enormous cavern wall. It's not a structure as much as it is just a hole cut into the stone deep beneath the earth of Manumi and here the outside walls of the city of Rund Cathair. She stops the pod, giving you the chance to climb out. You kind of scramble out of the pod and she turns to you. Have a good day. You too, thank you. Take off running in case she tries to talk to me again. <laughs> you take <laughs> off jogging toward the station and high above this very large entrance into the stone there is a bright red sign engraved and glowing on the stone above the entrance that just says the word exit in Gnomish. And you know this is the station. Really the only proper exit out of the city of Rune Cathair, or as the locals call it, Rune Rock. Chris, you enter the station? Yeah, I go in. It's already pretty busy in here. Uh, there are dozens of gnomes preparing to leave Rune Rock. Uh, you know, kind of sidling from side to side, looking around, figuring out which tunnel they need to go into, which uh, exit or entrance they need to find. And you look up, scanning the disparate tunnels as well. And above each tunnel entrance, there's a destination name illuminated in that same sort of bright glowing red. You finally spot the one that you need, and it says in Gnomish above it, Lower Dimmerhold. Okay, so I approach that station area. Okay, you approach the entrance to that tunnel? Yeah. Do I see who I'm supposed to be meeting up with, or do I assume I just need to hop on the train? You don't see anyone. Um, You're supposed to be meeting up with a couple of your colleagues from the guild. Uh, You don't see them, uh, and as you approach the gate, you see the attendant standing there. There is a gate that will have to be opened to allow you in. There is a gnomish figure standing there, a young gnomish man. He's got dark blackish hair, kind of short and messy. He's wearing big, thick glasses, uh, and he is holding what looks like a sort of like a book, like a booklet, like a ta- not a tablet, but like a you know, like a like a notebook in his hand, like a like a clipboard. Steven, Stevie, Stevo, do I really have to do this again? You know me. Like, can we just skip it today? <laughs> He, uh, he looks up, he sees you there, he pushes his big, thick glasses up on his nose, and he says, Good morning, Chris. Yes, I'm afraid we do have to do this. You know protocol. All right. Hit me with it. Let's get it over with. <clears throat> he, he flips through his uh, his clipboard there, he, he, and he looks up at you, kind of holding his back straight. Uh, name? Chris. Full name? Keeps rocks and socks. He flips through a few pages. He looks up at you again. Guild? Same one I've always been a part of, Stephen. Fizzy Gear Guild. He looks down and looks over his glasses at you, kind of scoldingly. And what is your business today? The same thing I do every time. I'm delivering goods, this time to Dimmerhold. And what goods are these? Adamantine. He looks down his papers, looks up at you, looks down his papers, and then he closes it up finally. All right, everything looks seems to be in order. Uh... Thank you, Chris, or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, thank you, uh, Keeps Rocks in Socks. Your drill train will be arriving. He looks down at this little dial on his wrist. In probably 15 or so minutes, if you would like to make your way down the tunnel, 
please, when you reach the line on the floor, it looks just like this one, and he points down to like a yellow dotted line at his feet. When you reach the yellow dotted line that runs across the floor and all the way around the tunnel, you must stop and wait there. And when the drill train arrives, make sure that you do not step in front of the line until the attendees tell you that it is safe. Thank you, Stephen. And because you were so blinded by hatred, you forgot part of your job. And as I'm walking away, I solemnly swear that I will tell no one of the secrets of Rune Cather. I was getting to that. He yells at you as you walk your way down the tunnel. <laughs> and he, like, frustratedly adjusts his collar and fixes glasses and turns back toward the crowd that's approaching him. You make your way down the tunnel. It's a long, dark tunnel. Uh, you come to a few staircases until you have dropped eh, probably something akin to three stories down from the entrance of the station. You finally come uh, following the lights on the walls and the stairs down, and you hear a few voices talking ahead, and you reach the end of this tunnel. At the end, there is, just like Stephen told you there would be, a yellow dotted line crossing across the floor and all the way around the walls and the ceiling. You see a few people standing around down here, probably 20-ish gnomes, a group standing there. And then you see a couple of dressed attendees standing on either side of the tunnel. As you're approaching the group, two of the gnomes break off and approach you. They look similar. They both have bright blue hair, one short and spiky, the other long and tied back in a ponytail with the similar rock gnome grayish skin that you're accustomed to. They come walking up toward you, uh, and the girl with the ponytail says, Chris, good morning. It's, you made it. I was getting kind of nervous. Zinks, do I ever not show up? No, of course not, but, you know, it's a big day, and it's your last day, and, you know, sometimes people like to call in on their last day. Why would I call in? This delivery is my ticket out of here. The male gnome steps forward, who looks uncannily like her, as they are twins, says, I've been trying to tell her, Chris, that you would never abandon us on such an important mission. But you know Zinx, she's uh, a bit high-strung and uh, maybe a little crazy. A little? That's the best you got? <laughs> he steps forward. He also is pulling behind him a small, what looks like kind of like a solid gray suitcase. I have the adamantine here. Do you want me to just keep it with me, or do you want to take it with you? I mean, this is your operation. Since I'm going to be kind of leading the pack, uh, you hold on to it. Might take it later when we split up at Dimmerhold. Zinx says, Now, Zalbar, you make sure you take good care of that. <laughs> That's worth a lot of money. Zinx, can you just chill? I'm chill. I'm just excited. I've never been on a trip to Dimmerhold like this before. I'm excited. And you know, the gauntlet of the moon, they're saying, is coming up real soon. Are you going to stick around and, and watch it? Watch it? I plan on participating. You think I'd miss an opportunity like that? Zinx and Zalbar look at each other and then look at you. <laughs> and then they both start laughing. <laughs> That's a good, good joke, Chris. Good joke. I kind of look at them and then look up at my sock. I may not be big, but I got some tricks up my sock. <laughs> <laughs> I was not ready for that. And Zalbar says, you're serious. You're actually thinking about entering into the gauntlet of the moon against the strongest and most powerful people across all of Monumi. 
There is no thinking, Zalbar. I'm doing it. And if I get beat, then that just means there's so much more I can learn from that experience. Zinx nods along with you. I think it's very brave, Chris. I think you'll you'll do well. Um, just be careful, you know, and maybe we'll stick around and, and watch you. That would be great, as long as we have time. Uh, you know, Gearby's pretty strict about schedule, you know, getting there, getting back. That's true. We may not have time to stick around uh, to see your untimely death, Chris, Zelbar says. And as he says that, you hear a whistle coming from the two attendees behind you, and you turn to see the stone wall opposite, uh, yeah, probably 15, 20 feet away from the dotted line, has begun to glow red hot. And soon a large metal tube comes right through it, churning through molten rock. The large metal tube is turning, covered in spirals like a gigantic screw, and the molten rock runs off of it like water onto the floor, as if it's repelled by some unseen magical membrane. Two gnomes approach the attendees from the left and right as the tube stops and cast cold air over it with glowing orbs. Once their work is done, the pointed front of the tube creases and opens up into three parts. Its bottom portion lowers with a staircase on the inside. The attendees now step forward and begin motioning for everyone to walk up and begin boarding the driller train. That's our cue. All right, let's get it, Nomis. Everyone in front of you uh, steps forward. Everyone else in the line is in front of you all as you've been standing back talking. They begin boarding the driller train. Zalbar and Zinx step in front of you, stepping up the staircase. And Chris, you pause at the top of the steps with one final glance back. While you've taken many trips from Ruined Rock before, this time's different, and you can't help but wonder when you'll hear that thrumming hum of your hidden home again. Gertie could beat a dragon. Shh, it's about to start. The warm lamplight shining from behind a gigantic bearskin pelt dims, and the room becomes very dark. The children sit silent, waiting with eager anticipation. And then a voice begins to speak from behind the curtain. It was a warm night in the Southlands. Gertie, the Stonefire, was traveling back from the jungles north of the magical city, where she had dined with the lords of the elves. They had offered her gifts, wagon loads of gold, but she told them she wouldn't take anything she couldn't carry on her back. And so instead of the gold, they had enchanted her hammer, that it would never chip and never crack that it would return to her hand with a simple word of command. Whoa. With this new power in her hands, Gertie was anxious to put it to the test. It's one thing to say the hammer was magic. It was another to put it to action. On the road home, Gertie took a detour off the path to the north some 10 miles, and she came to a treacherous place. 
dangerous, notoriously a den of the monsters, the pits of tin. Oh no! Not the pits of tin. With a flourish, one side of the bearskin pelt is pulled to the left from the middle like a curtain, and a bright yellow lantern shines from the ceiling. To the left, walking in place, is a young dwarf, clad in animal skins and painted with tribal markings on her face and arms, bluish-green. Her blonde hair is pulled back in a ponytail, and in her hands, she holds a great war hammer, crafted from a loaf of bread painted gray and stabbed through with an old broom handle. As the sun reached its peaks in the sky, she slowly crept her way down toward the pits, her ears and eyes open, looking for the first sign of a death dog or drake to test out her hammer on. Little did she know, as she slid down the large ravine, something new, something powerful, had taken roost in the pits, a great desert rock. What's that? The right curtain is suddenly pulled aside, revealing the great desert rock. A thick-boned figure is curled up around a gigantic stone, painted like a colorful egg. His clothes are lined with bright feathers of red, blue, and gold, and on his face is strapped a long, sharp beak. He is sleeping. Excited, Gertie slowly approaches the great beast. Tiptoe, tiptoe. One step at a time, she says, tiptoeing toward the feathered man hugging the rock. Closer and closer, she stepped up onto its nest. The great hammer raised high above her head, and then... The feathered man rises to his feet, his arms flapping ferociously toward the dwarf. They begin running back and forth, spinning around one another. The desert rock flaps his feathered arms in her face, pecking with his gigantic beak. The dwarf drops and rolls across the floor, away from the great bird as the children cheer her on. Go, Gertie, go! The feathered man squawks again loudly. <coughs> then flapping his wings, he runs around, arms spread, and begins to swoop down toward her again. Look out, Gertie! The dwarf, down on her knees, grasps the homemade hammer in her hands and with a great war cry, tosses it true toward her foe. The bread hammer crashes into the beak of the feathered man, knocking it askew. And with one final squawk, he falls onto the ground, clutching his chest and goes still. The children cheer, now with a feathered man defeated. But he quickly lifts his head, shushing them once more. Shh, it's not finished. Lying still again, the dwarf then approaches the nest of the great desert rock once more. And with a coo, she leans down and picks up a small turtle tucked away in the nest behind the rock's egg. Aw, hello there, little fella. Don't you worry now. Gertie's gotcha. Turning to the audience, the dwarf holds the turtle in one hand and the hammer in the other. And thus did Gertie the Great, Gertie the Stonefire, unwittingly rescue her lifelong friend, Shelbert. And that day did her legendary weapon claim its name, the Turtle Rock. The children cheer again, clapping together as the blonde dwarf and the feathered man rise to their feet, 
bowing for their audience. All right, now that's enough. It's time for bed. You've had your show. An older dwarf lady comes walking into the room, shooing all the children together. They quickly begin to protest. Ah, I just want more. Come on, Mom. We did all our chores today. Can we have one more story? Yeah, Mommy, one more story. No, no, that's enough now. It's time for bed. You've had your stories, she says, shooing them off toward the steps. Okay. Now tell your father good night. Tell your sister good night, and off to bed with ya. Okay, fine. Good night, Dad. The feathered man stands, pulling the beak off the side of his head. He sheds the big feathered cloak and then steps toward his children. Come on now, it's time for you all. It's time for bed, it's time come with me. No whining, no whining. Head right upstairs, I'll come, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you one more story before we go to sleep. Yay! Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Dad. Good night, Mom. Good night, Mommy. Good night, my dears. The dwarf man, his long, black, and gray beard hanging down to his knees, turns again to his acting partner. Good luck, Mogart. I know she seems a bit scary, but there's nothing to fear. The worst you can do is say no again. Yeah, you're right. Thanks, Papa. Oh, don't you worry. I'll be upstairs when you're done. Okay. He turns and heads up the stairs after the kids, yelling at them and squawking like a great bird. <laughs> so, you turn. Your mother is in the kitchen still cleaning up from the night's supper, getting things ready before she settles down for the night. And Mogert is nervous. You step forward toward the doorway. You pause, brush yourself off, and kind of look down at yourself. Uh, why don't you describe exactly how Mogert looks? Well, she's took off her outfit. Okay. She is pretty tan. She's blonde. She has mm -hmm. her hair in a low ponytail. Okay. She... Still has the paintings from the act that they just did, mm -hmm. the teal painting. She's got a sleeveless shirt on. She has bright teal eyes with a tan complexion. she nervous? Oh, she's real nervous. You step into the kitchen. It is a simple kitchen, but large. And the dinner table sits right in the middle of it with a cooking stove off to one side near the hearth, if you will. Uh, and then some counters and space for preparing foods. As you step into the warm light where the torches are still burning bright, your mother turns, seeing you standing there. Oh, Mogert, be a dear. Uh, will you grab that wash basin, please, and bring it over here? I don't think she would say anything to her. She would just go do it. So I, I think that was one of our best shows that we've done. Oh, sure, yeah. I always did like the one uh, with the turtle rock. Yeah. Me and your father had a real blast putting that one on for you when you were just a wee lass. I remember. And you hit him so hard that one time he he fell over and hit the wall and knocked him out. <laughs> well, we learned our lesson not to use a real rock in the hammer. <laughs> uh, he's got a few bruises and knots. I think he's still got that knot on the side of his head from that one. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the children really do love it, don't they? Yeah. Max and Dax, they are just really getting into it. Oh, and Roxy, she's hopeless, isn't she? Yeah, she loves it. I went to see Sterling and Rosie yesterday. Oh? Yeah. They're doing good. Kids are looking good. Right. Sterling had the scroll. 
Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, um, the the scroll from Demerhold. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He said he's not going. Your mother sighs. Mogert, we've been over this. I know, I know. But they did send it to the Stonefighter clan. Sure they did. Who who will go? If Sterling doesn't go, who will go? She leans on the countertop, wringing out the wet rag in her right hand. Mogert, it's not necessary for anyone from the Stonefire clan to go. It's a little rude, don't you think? It's not like they're going to roll out the red carpet for us, dear. <laughs> it's not even a sure thing. It was an invitation to try out for the gauntlet. They would roll out a carpet for Gertie. She did win that right. year. But Gertie, Gertie is gone <laughs> for centuries. Gertie is legend at this point. Mm. Look, I know you'd like to go, and I know you think you've got to prove something, but you don't. You're just fine here with us. And she turns and uh, packs some of the clean dishes over and begins to put them away. You never believed in me. Uh, she turns her head, cocking it to the side. I'm sorry, what was that? I. What did you say, Mogart? You, you, never, you never believed in me. I... Mogart Stonefire. I'll not be hearing that sort of talk from you. But... I am your mother. Of course I believe in you. I believe in you as much as anyone believes in you. More! Except for maybe your dear father. As Look, I understand that it seems wrong. And it seems like I, I, I'm trying to just lock you down or keep you from glory. But that's not the case. You don't know what that gauntlet's going to be, my dear. And I'm sorry, but fighting off... Coyotes and, and even the the rare death dog is nothing like what those women and those men are gonna face in Demerhold. It may it may be my only way to connect with Gertie and become the ancestor guardian of our clan. <sighs> you know I'm destined for greatness. No, I, yes, dear. She walks over toward you, stopping placing a hand on each shoulder. Mogert looks down, not meeting her mom in the eye. She takes your face in her hands, pulling your chin up and locking eyes with you. She's probably crying a little bit. Mogert, I believe in you. I believe in your destiny, whatever that may be. If it is to become the ancestral guardian, then I believe that. If, if, it's, if it's for Dari or Bargus, or Margot, or Sterling, or even Max, or Dax, or Sarah, or Roxy. I believe one of you, yes, one of you will, you'll follow in the footsteps of our ancestors. You'll take on that responsibility. But Mogar, don't, don't chase something if it's not meant to be yours. Okay, Mama. She kisses you on the forehead. I know your heart is set on this, and, and it may be that you are the ancestral guardian of the Stonefire clan, but it's not today, and the gauntlet's not for you tomorrow. And that's that. She steps back, dusting her hands again. Now off to bed with you. We've got work tomorrow, and um, off to bed with you. She turns and 
quietly just walks upstairs, slowly. Maybe everyone's while turning back and looking at her mom. You go upstairs. The little ones are already in their beds, asleep. Max, Dax, and Roxy share a room with you. Sarah and Melina have a separate room where they stay. Morgan's papa's asleep in between Max and Dax, one lying on each arm. Roxy at his feet, all bundled up on a pile of pelts at the foot of Mogert's bed. Mogert goes, she climbs into her bed, pulling the pelt up over herself. It's cool. It's colder than it's probably ever been this time of year, even though it is winter, this far south in the drylands. Ever since the forests have turned white, it's gotten much colder. But as she lays there thinking, her mind racing, her heart beating, and a bit broken, she finally does drift off to sleep. Morgan! Your eyes pop open at the sound of a harrowing cry high above you. You lift your head just in time to see the great feathered beast swooping down towards you, her long talons stretching to pierce you through. You tuck and roll to the side, swiftly drawing the hammer from your back. Run, Mogert! Run! You hear the voice of your father call out to you from behind. With a quick glance back, you see them, your parents, standing high above you on a stone tower, watching as the great desert rock caws loudly and swoops around, preparing to dive in for another strike. You ready yourself, standing with your feet spread apart, bracing for another attack. But as you look up toward the terrible bird, in its shadow you suddenly feel very cold. You gotta do it, Morgan. You hear, as your mother appears behind you, whispering her body translucent like smoke. Run while you still can, girl. You're not Gertie. You'll never be as strong as she. No, you're wrong. You jerk your head upward in time to see the rock's talons swing towards your neck. It latches onto your shoulder straps, lifting you a few inches off of the ground. The strap snaps, and it takes the great turtle shell from your back, flying high up with it. You're just not strong enough, dearie. Your place is here, with me. Come, I'll keep you safe. You see your mother up ahead, still smoky and translucent, her arms spread wide. Run, Mogut! Now's your chance you can do it! Your father cries out from atop the tower. I can do this! Go! No, dear. You can't. Another cry rings from above as the desert rock dives toward you. You run forward again with all of your speed, holding the hammer tight in your two hands. But as you run, you notice the teal marks on your arms begin to fade. Then your headband and your leather brace. They turn to smoke and disappear. You see, you cannot do it, Mogart. Sliding to a stop, you brace yourself once more. Ah! Tears in your eyes, you brandish your hammer. But then, gripping it tightly, your hands pass through the solid handle as it fades to smoke as well. The desert rock dives, 
screeching down toward you with its talons outstretched. In the moments before its long, deadly claws pierce you through, you see your mother standing just ahead, shaking her head slowly. I knew it, Mogart. You weren't strong enough. I knew it. And as the sharp talons pierce your flesh, your eyes fall on the face of your father, his eyes downcast, closed in defeat. You jerk awake, panting. You're back in your room now, and everything is quiet. The twins and Roxy are all asleep in their beds. Your papa's gone back down to his own room. Your heart is thumping in your chest, the blood pumping loudly in your ears, hot. You grip the collar of your tunic. You can still feel those sharp talons as they pierced your flesh. Quickly, you roll out of bed, standing to your feet, your breath rising and falling quickly, your entire body electric with fear and with purpose. Your clothes are damp with sweat, and your heart rising in your chest. She's wrong. They're all wrong. It is my time. I have to go. Now, your heart resigned to what you know you must do. You quickly dress yourself for travel, grabbing a few important things and stuffing them into a makeshift rucksack. Once finished, you pause over the little ones. They won't understand now, but they will one day. You lean down, kissing Roxy and the twins on their forehead. Then, silent as a rogue, you make your way back downstairs. Grabbing your sleeveless cloak, you slip out the front door of your home and out into the cold dark. It's a clear night. The moon shines brightly with the stars overhead. You walk across the dry, desert ground to the northern side of your home, where there stands a long, narrow building, the symbol of the clan stone fire carved plainly into the center of the door. Inside, you close the door behind you. And then taking a small lantern near the doorway, you light it, stepping forward. Walking slowly toward the back, the light of the torch reflects off of the lacquered wooden walls, and each panel speaks another chapter in the history of the Stonefire clan. The greatest exploits of your ancestors are represented within these four walls. Each of their weapons and tokens of battle immortalized here within this shrine but none bear the weight of the final artifacts hanging prominently on the rear wall. Stepping forward, you raise your torch. The large shell of Gertie's dear tortoise hangs there, still. Across the back of the shell, strapped to it, is a large war hammer, Turtle Rook, the pale gray stone marked only with the turtle symbol of the clan Stonefire. You pause for a moment, lowering your eyes to the large stone at your feet, bearing the words, In honor of our matriarch, the warrior Stonefire, Gertie the Great, and her faithful companion, Shilbert. Stilling your breath, you reach up, 
taking the hammer in your hands. You feel its weight, turning it over again and again. Brushing your hand over the turtle symbol of your clan, you notice something. Perhaps it is the late hour, or just a trick of the light, but for a small moment, almost imperceptibly, it seems as if that dark teal symbol gives off the faintest glow. Some minutes later, Mogert exits the shrine. The shell is now strapped to her back, her sleeveless cloak draped over it with her hood pulled up and hanging down over her right shoulder. Her blonde hair is formed into a long, tight braid. The teal tribal paintings of Gertie are now back on her arms and turtle rock is strapped to the shell. She walks to the stables nearby, stepping inside. Moving forward, she approaches a large furry beast. A tall, black and gray-haired mastiff raises its enormous head, sniffing her hand and leaning in as she rubs him behind the ears. All right, Smokey. I guess it's gonna be me and you for a while. Atop her companion, Smokey, Mogert rides out from the dark stables, pointed north. As they reach the crest of the hill, she pauses for one more moment as she looks down again toward her home. Protect them, Gertie. Please. This has been Make Believe Heroes, the season four premiere. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week to meet the rest of our cast for season four. We love you. Goodbye.